0: Thanks, John. As you're passing the baskets, would you go ahead and uh, grab your Bible or your preferred electronic device that gives you access to the scriptures and get your way to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to look at verses 13 through 16. Um, I'll be honest with you, I get pretty excited about the fact that we get to open the Bible and find out what Jesus has to say. Does anybody else get a little excited about that? Are you kidding me? Really? You guys, I was hoping... That since you probably have more caffeine and more sleep, you would be more excited than first service. Because we had three people go, yay. <laughs> so all six of you, right, way to be on fire for Jesus. So anyway, um, so we're going to look at verse 13 through 16 today. As we've come through the first part of Matthew chapter 5. As we're walking through this series called Disciple. As we're looking at really what Jesus has to say about what it means to follow him. concluding the, the Beatitudes, which is the gateway or really the front door of what it means to follow Jesus. He lays that out for us. And now coming through that, we transition now where Jesus basically begins to, to demonstrate, and what we'll talk about today is taking what the Beatitudes teach us about what it means to be blessed in the, the context that Jesus gives us, and living that out in such a way that it impacts not only our lives, but it impacts people around us. This morning we're going to talk about influence. And here's the challenge for all of us, is that you and I, when we say yes to following Jesus, You and I do not get an option to choose whether or not we will be influenced or have influence in other people's lives. It is a given. And when we look at the passage today, Jesus says, you are salt and you are light. He doesn't say, you are if you feel like it, you are if you try to be it. He says, you are. And that means that you and I have influence, either positive influence or negative influence when it comes to following Jesus and the people around us. See, you and I don't realize on any given day we are experiencing being influenced by other people or other means, or we are influencing other people around us. Influence is a part of our daily life. Our thoughts are influenced by what people say or do. We're influenced through the media. We're influenced through different leaders. And that is true for our lives as well. And influence dictates a lot of what we end up doing and the decisions we make in our life, how we are influenced around us. You can see this in nature, and maybe you've heard this story. A couple of years ago, uh, on, a, on a wildlife refuge in South Africa, they started discovered rhinos that were being killed. Now, this was a sanctuary, so it was. It was controlled. It wasn't poachers. They knew this when they came upon these, these carcasses of these rhinos. They knew that it wasn't done by human beings because they had contained the perimeter. And there weren't poachers that were part of that. And so they were trying to figure out what in the world was happening to rhinos. They would usually lose maybe one or two a year just to natural causes. But they were losing almost one or two a month. And these were endangered species, so they're trying to figure out what was going on with rhinos. And so they got up in their helicopter, and they flew over the, the park, and they were looking, and they discovered, and they figured out what was going on. There were elephants, young adolescent elephants, that actually were targeting the rhinos and killing them systematically. And they began to figure out the dynamic of what was happening amongst these elephants, the elephants that had been put on this in this particular park came from another place where an entire generations of elephants had been wiped out behind them. So they had no, in a sense, no parents to oversee them. So they took these younger elephants and they released them thinking, oh, well, they're elephants, they'll figure it out. Well, what happened is in the absence of authority, in the absence of a, a parental influence, these young adolescents, when they're reaching the peak of their hormones... decided decided to go ballistic on rhinos, and it was headed by one particular elephant. And so they're trying to figure out what in the world do we do because we don't want to destroy these elephants, but we know that they're killing off the rhinos, and before we know it, there won't be any more rhinos left on, on this park. So somebody figured out in the dynamics of how elephants work, they went and got a bull, adult, mature elephant, and they introduced him into the park. And within a month, no more rhinos were dying overnight really i mean it's amazing and what happened is obviously the adult male comes in and he understands the way things work and he has the power of influence even though he's an elephant he may not be able to articulate it but he knows he has influence and, and i don't know how he does it i don't know if it's the way he spits at him or he way he waves his trunk or his ears he basically says hey guys this is not the way we do life as elephants we don't go killing rhinos and these young adolescents were so influenced by the adult male that they stopped slaughtering the rhinos See, you and I have to understand, it goes far beyond, you know, I'm not saying we're elephants, we're just a little bit better than elephants, I think, but understanding that influence plays a part in our lives every single day. And that's why on a much grander, and more important scale, you and I have to understand the influence when you say yes to following Jesus. You have influence, and your influence isn't on trying to stop rhinos from being slaughtered. Your influence has to do with the eternity of this planet, of people who live here. And their lives that can go on forever with God or they can be terminated and end in a place that none of us would even want to think about. We have that potential within us. We have that kind of influence. And so this morning I want to talk about what Jesus begins to explain to you and I in Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 to 16. So let me read from this passage. If you have your Bible, you can follow along. So Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men, that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Now, before we move on, just remember the context this is in. We just finished with last week of here We talked about everyone's favorite topic persecution, and talked about Jesus actually says that that's a a state of actually being blessed when you're persecuted, because what it says about your life, and then understanding all the other Beatitudes of what we walk through, what Jesus is saying is, is that if you choose to follow me, and you choose to live a life that demonstrates what it means to follow me, what will be true of your life is the Beatitudes, and those things will be what shines into the world, what seasons the world, because they look at you, and they realize you are different than me, not in a judgmental way, but in a way that somebody looks at your life and sees that you don't live by the same rhythm. You don't live by the same rules. You live differently. You live in the culture, but you don't live by the culture. And Jesus says, if you and I live that way, we will be like salt and we will be like light in our world and we will influence the culture around us instead of being influenced by the culture around us. So understand that. I want to kind of begin at the end and then work our way back in a sense. So the first question I want to just deal with is, what is the goal of our influence so that we have influence? Is it just to make people good people? Is it to kind of modify their behavior? Is it to change something about their lives? Jesus says what the ultimate goal of influence is in verse 16, and that is the answer to this, is it's a demonstration that leads to glorification. It's the demonstration of who Jesus is through our lives that ultimately leads to not our glory, but it leads to God's glory. Jesus says, in the same way, let your light shine before men so that they may see your good deeds and not praise you, not praise me, but praise who? Our Father in heaven. Ultimately, this is about God's glory. This whole thing is about God's glory. And I've mentioned this, and you'll hear it periodically over and over and over again. One of the things that we constantly have to do as a church, and we constantly have to do as individual followers of Jesus, is remind ourselves, what is the end result? What is the finish line? What does the finish line of all of human history look like? We already know what it looks like. We already know the end of the movie because Jesus already told us what the end of the movie looks like. And in the book of Revelation in chapter 7, there's two verses that demonstrate for you and I that those are the verses that you and I need to constantly be reminded of. This is where all this is going. And if this is where all this is going, it it has to impact the way that we live our lives. Listen to these verses in Revelation 7, verses 9 and 10. It says, after I looked, this is John, this is a vision that God gave him. It says, there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, to- or people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and unto the Lamb. That is the, that is the finish line. And what is that? That is... Human beings who are imperfect and flawed and broken and sinful, standing before a holy God because they've been forgiven by the blood of Jesus from every tongue, tribe, and nation under the sun who's ever existed, worshiping at the throne. That's God's desire. In the context of worship, you and I think, oh, it's just singing, it's going to get really boring, I'm not a good singer. Some people think that. But what it is, it's you and I in a direct relationship with the God of the universe with no barriers, with no sin, with no pain, with no suffering, with no sorrow, just face-to-face with Jesus, worshiping him. And God desires that for all people. That's the finish line. That's why Jesus says your influence is extremely important because the ultimate goal has to do with eternity. It has to do with what people will do forever Will they be forever with him or will they be forever separated from him? You and I, this is what's crazy. And I someday I gotta ask God this question. Why in the world would you entrust your mission and your work to us? Seriously. But think about that. God says to you and I, your influence has eternal consequences. Your your influence has eternal responsibility. That means God has said to you and I, today we can affect what happens at the finish line, what happens in the future. And it's so important for us to be reminded of this. It is about God being glorified. Our influence in other people's lives. So what you say, what you think, what you do, how you act, who you talk to, all those things have a direct impact on eternity. And if you and I begin to live out our life realizing that, and realizing the people around us and the influence that God has given us, to influence them towards God, to help people be reconciled back to God through Jesus so that someday they can stand before the throne. I've shared this before, but there's many testimonies I could share of that the, there was a women and children's shelter that we were a part of in Newburgh, in, in Oregon. And it was one of the most amazing things, all these churches partnering together to help care for women and their kids coming off the street and in a way that was built to build relationship. That was the focus so that ultimately God could use those relationships to bring people to Jesus. So one girl named Michelle, she came in, and I've mentioned this, she announced to everyone who was in the shelter, I'm an atheist. All I need is a place off the street, so don't give me your God talk. Leave me alone. She made that very clear. And so because everybody knew that, nobody tried to preach at her. Nobody gave her a Bible. Nobody took her through the four spiritual laws. Nobody did any of that. All they did was love her. All they did was care for her kids. They provided a roof overhead. They provided food for her. They cared for her, and they loved her. They loved her when she rejected them. She loved, they loved her when she isolated herself. They loved her no matter what she was going through. And over three or four months period, she made another announcement to people in the shelter. She said, I have come to the conclusion that there must be a God because it's only through that that you people could learn to love me. She gave her life to Jesus. We got to baptize her in our church. And now today, she serves as a a host in that shelter that she came in off the streets from and found Jesus. And her life is now about glorifying God. Why? Because a group of people said, we have influence we have influence for somebody walking in off the street. Let's demonstrate what it looks like when we live by what Jesus has called us to live by. When we, ex- when we show God's love to people in a way that they can understand it, it changes hearts, it transforms lives, and ultimately, it glorifies God. So what is the point of influence? The point of influence is to influence people towards Jesus, ultimately, to glorify God. That's why he gives it to us. And then moving on, another question that really now gets more of kind of the specifics of the passage and really what you and I need to understand kind of on the negative side is that there's things that neutralize our influence, that take our influence and make them of no consequence in the lives of other people. Jesus tells us about those. The first thing is in verse 13. And you and I, our influence gets neutralized by contamination. So Jesus says in verse 13, he says, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. What is Jesus talking about? When was the last time you went to your cupboard and you pulled out your salt shaker and you put something on the food and, and you said, "Wow, there's no salty taste." Anybody ever had that? You pro- if you did, it's probably because you grabbed sugar. and you, it was tasted sweeter. Does salt lose its salty flavor? No, what Jesus is talking about is that salt doesn't lose its salty flavor. It loses its purpose of being salt, being salty when it's compromised. See, when Jesus used this analogy a couple thousand years ago, this made complete sense to people because salt was something that they knew a lot about. In fact, salt was a very important and somewhat valuable commodity in this day. It was used to heal wounds. It was used for preservation of food. It was used for all kinds of... It had lots of uses, so it was extremely valuable. We usually primarily use it for seasoning things, but it was used for a lot of the things, so it was a very valuable commodity. Well, obviously, people knowing that and wanting to make money off of salt, what they would do is they would find a, a nice white powder that resembled salt and they would mix it into the salt to increase the volume and then they would go out and they would sell it. So people would buy it thinking, okay, I'm getting pure salt, but what I'm getting is compromised contaminated salt that's not pure. Pure. So that's why Jesus says when you find that contaminated salt, the only thing it's good for, and literally what they did was when they found contaminated salt, they would take it out into the streets and they would throw it on the ground for people to trample over it, and eventually it would just work its way back into the dust of the day. That's all it was good for. So how are you and I contaminated? Usually the first default that we have when we think about contamination is we think, okay, well, I'm impure, I'm immoral, I say wrong things, and it has to do with being filthy. But what Jesus is talking about is when we get compromised, when we get contaminated, remember the context. It's the Beatitudes followed by you have influence. You and I become contaminated when we start to live counter to what Jesus has said in the Beatitudes. When we come to a place when we think, oh yeah, I'm supposed to be poor in spirit. You know what, but really I have a lot going on. I'm a pretty good person. I'm not really that broken. Or where Jesus says, you know, you're blessed when you mourn over your sin. So, you know what, you know, I I do sin, but I found a lot of other people who sin more than me, so I'm not that bad. We start to think that way. Or when it comes to mercy, you and I think, yeah, mercy is good for me, but, you know, I'm going to pass judgment on other people. You know, and peace is a great context for me living, but I'm not going to go worry about anybody else being in peace. See, because what that does is that is the world mindset influencing the way that we think. It compromises us. And so we, in some reaction, in some, reactions, some, some context, what we end up doing is we take the world's kind of mentality, and then we bring it into the church, and we say, look what God gave me. And God didn't give that to us. Because Jesus has already given us the mindset we're supposed to have, and it's really opposite of what we usually embrace in the world around us. So it is, it's living counterculture. So understanding what it means to be contaminated means you and I start to think like the world, but think that we're thinking like God. Somehow we get it it confused. And then we lose our influence because we become just like the world. There's no difference between us and anybody else. And God says, no, you should be different because you follow me. I saw this in a kind of stark way, and I had a conversation with a pastor a couple years ago. I've always loved relationships and friendships with other pastors in our city. Simi Valley has a great network and a great group of pastors and I've been able to connect with a lot of them and like to go out to lunch and grab coffee or there's a prayer time we get together and it's wonderful because we're all in this together. We are all serving Jesus for his purpose. We're all on the same team. In Newburgh and Oregon, we experience that quite often. In fact, we had a great network of churches and pastors that worked together, and we saw God do profound things through churches coming together and saying, you know what, we're going to stop fighting over people, we're going to stop sheep swapping, which, by the way, it's really great when all the pastors in town know each other and people stop sw- start swapping churches. We would call each other and say, hey, just wanted to let you know what's coming your way. <laughs> Some of us would say, I'm going to bless you with a family, just good luck, you know, I'll be praying for you. Seriously." It was amazing how that back door started to shut down when people would walk in and start saying things about another church and say, Hey, that's my good friend. But I sat down with one pastor one day in particular. He had been in the city for about a couple months, and he had come from some significant ministries throughout the country. And so he came into Newburgh and he kind of had his idea of how things were supposed to work. And so we sat down, I wanted to hear his story. He told me his journey, what he'd walked through, and and uh, and so we were we were sharing about some different things and and so he He began to explain to me his concept of how the church is most effective in a city. And so I said, oh, I'd love to hear this. This guy has a great experience. In fact, he's an author. He's written books. So he starts to explain to me. He said, you know, most people think that the church should be unified and work together. He goes, I think the opposite. He said, churches need to be in competition with each other. That's when kingdom work really gets done. And I thought, okay, where's the hidden camera? Uh, that doesn't make sense to me, and he, go on, he went on to explain how he said, you know, in the business world, competition breeds ingenuity, it makes businesses grow, it makes things better, it's kind of the capitalistic way, he goes, and the same thing is true in the church, when churches start to work together, no work really gets done, because everybody just ends up hanging out with each other, and just getting along, and he goes, there's no edge to it, there's no sharpness to it, there's no competition, churches need to actually work on their own, and I'm thinking, are you kidding me? And this is what I said to him. I said, you know, respectfully, I don't know you very well. I said, but I have to disagree with you. I said, that is not true for the context that you're in right now. That's not true of Newburgh. There are so many things that have happened in that city that are a result of the churches coming together. There are people who have come to Christ because the churches got along. There are people's needs that have been met because the churches come together and connect. And when they connect, they're actually able to help and meet the needs of all the people in the city. I mean, in Newburgh, there's no reason someone should ever go without clothing or without food because there was so much resource the churches brought together. We cared for the needs of people. And as I explained this to him, he looked at me and he said, no, you're wrong. I said, okay. I said, I disagree. He lasted a year and a half, and eventually the church pushed him out because he would refuse to partner with any other churches in the city and was convinced this was what God wanted for the church, Obviously, he didn't read John 17 when Jesus' prayer was that they would be one, that we would be one as he and the Father one. I don't hear competition in that. He didn't read Paul when Paul talked about being being one in mind and heart and spirit. He didn't read any of those. He was reading too many business books that his thinking about the church. And sometimes we do that. We're contaminated with the world's thinking and we think, oh, it's God. No, it's not God. Because we've lost sight of what does Jesus have for us? What does he want for us? That's why we're in this, that's why we're going in the sense, we're looking at the red letters right now. What did Jesus say? Let's do what he said. And maybe some business guru might come along and say something good, but it's only if it's in line with what Jesus already said about what the church is supposed to be, about what we're supposed to be. So the second thing is for us to consider is that we're also neutralizing our influence through isolation, so Jesus goes on, verse 14, 15, he says, You're the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. And then verse 15, Neither do people light a lamp and then put, put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. What is Jesus talking about? A light is only effective if it's in darkness. And a light is only effective if it's shining and not covered. So in other words, one of the things that neutralizes our influence is when you and I want to shine our light either in isolation under the cover of a bowl or something else to keep it away so it doesn't get blown out, or we think the more light, the better, so we all get together as fellow brothers and sisters in Christ and we all shine our lights really bright and think, well, look how bright we are together. That's not the purpose of light. The purpose of light is not to hang out with other light. The purpose of light is to be in the midst of darkness so that it can shine light and bring clarity for other people. And sometimes that's hard because our tendency, especially when we think about We don't want to be impure. We don't want to be contaminated. We want to make sure that we're right before God. That usually, a lot of times in the church, we think that means to isolate. That means to remove ourselves from the culture. Because the culture is evil, and the more we're around the evil, the more it's gonna rub off on us. Anybody ever read through the Gospels? Do you ever see who Jesus hung out with? He hung out with, according to the, 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 the religious leaders, he hung out with the scum of the earth. He hung out with adulterers and tax collectors. And thieves and murderers and people that you don't know, hang, that's bad company and they're going to corrupt you. But Jesus hung out with them. Why? Because he realized that they were in darkness and needed light. He didn't retreat, he didn't opt for safety or comfort or security. He went into the midst of what needed to be done and went into the darkness so he could shine light. And that's what Jesus is saying. One of the things that will neutralize or influence is when we think that the moment we come to Christ, we're supposed to extract ourselves from the world. We're not. We're supposed to be present in the midst of darkness. That's scary. That's dangerous. That's risky. But that's exactly where God's called us to be. We have to constantly keep that in mind as believers and as a church. The decisions we make as a church have to reflect the fact that God has called us to be light in darkness. That means we can't remove ourselves from the culture that we live in. We can't huddle on Sunday mornings and all shine our light really bright and say, wasn't that a great service? And then somehow extinguish those lights when we walk out the door. Light's not made for here. Light's made for darkness. There's a church up in Fresno. It's called Valley Christian Center. It's a four-square church that I admire their journey. The church has been around for like 35, 40 years, I think. They've seen amazing things happen in their history. They've seen a lot of influence in their city. But they've gone through a lot of transition like the last decade. One of those points of transition was happening was that they were following kind of the same progression that a lot of churches in the U.S. follow, and that is... You know, you, you get into a community 30 or 40 years ago, and the community looks different than it does today. In fact, the area that they found property in Fresno was actually in a, in a probably a desirable area of town at that time. So they built this big campus, and they've got a nice facility, but then over time, the neighborhood changed. The demographic changed, the ethnicity changed, the economic level changed. Crime rate went through the roof. So they followed the normal progression of a lot of churches. So what did they think they did? They bought property in the suburbs, outside the middle of the city because it's cheaper, it's cleaner, and it's safer. Let's go there. So that was the trajectory they were on. Well, they went through such transition. Now they have a pastor they've had for the last couple of years, and he came in and he called a timeout. He said, wait a second. We're not moving anywhere. The greatest need in our city Is just outside our property. We're surrounded with brokenness. We're surrounded with people who need Jesus. We're surrounded with people living in darkness. Why in the world would we move to the suburbs where it's safe? So he said, We're not going anywhere. We're making a commitment to stay right here. Now, some people didn't like that and they left. They decided to leave because the demographic of the church changed. Guess what? The church started to look like a neighborhood because they started reaching out to the neighborhood. The ethnicity of the church completely changed. It was a white church, and now it was actually very multicultural, and people coming in from different backgrounds and different languages, and people who are broken. In fact, a lot of the people who have stuck it out and stayed there, they said, you know, we used to come in, it was a celebration of all these mature believers together. They said, now we come in, and the church is filled with all these broken people. It's like triage every Sunday. God forbid the world invades the church. I so admire the leader who'd made that decision because they are having more influence in that area of town than they've ever had in their 40 years of history. They're reaching people. There are people who actually, I couldn't believe it. They didn't want their kids to go to the youth group anymore because it was too rough. So they pulled their kids out and decided to go to another church where their kids were more comfortable and could be around kids that were like them. Oh man, aren't you glad Jesus didn't hang out with people who were like him? He didn't hang out with the perfect, hang out with the broken. And if you and I learn to embrace this idea of influence, we don't want to be neutralized because somehow we've pulled ourselves back and we've decided to isolate ourselves from the world. God's called us beyond that. So ultimately, understanding that, what does our influence look like? So we are compromised. We are, our, our influence is neutralized when we're contaminated. We, we don't become the salt we're supposed to be, or we're isolated, and we don't allow the light to shine in the darkness. But what does it actually look like when we live out the influence that Jesus has given us? The first thing is understanding, again, we're going to look at salt and light. The first thing has to do with integration. Not compromise, but integration. Think of salt. Jesus is using these analogies on purpose. Salt is not effective in the salt shaker. It's not. It might look good on your shelf, but salt doesn't become effective until it gets on your food and it begins to melt and integrate with it so it seasons something so it tastes better or tastes different. It is not effective sitting in a salt shaker. So for you and I to be effective in our influence, to truly be salt means we have to be fully integrated with the culture that we live in. We have to be a part of it. Although we are separate from it because we choose to follow Jesus, it doesn't mean that we're isolated. It means that we integrate ourselves with the culture around us so that we can influence it. That's one of the reasons that ultimately the the culture that we live in has now influenced the church more than the church has influenced the culture is because we've isolated ourselves. There's been no light in the darkness. There's been no salt for the world to know. And so understanding that means that we know that this concept of integrating ourselves. Listen to Jesus' prayer for his disciples, which also extends 2,000 years to today. For you and I, this is what Jesus prayed for. He says, my prayer for his disciples is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. What was Jesus saying? Don't yank them out of there. Don't pull them out of there because it's bad and it's dirty and it's safe, it's unsafe and it's dangerous. No, protect them in the midst of the world. That's God's prayer for us. That's why John also wrote in 1 John 4, 4, But he that is in us is greater than he that is in the world. How many of you heard that verse a million times? Do we believe it? That's why we have to be willing to integrate. That means we have to overlap with the culture that we live in. One of those decisions we made as a church is this last Halloween, we did not have a harvest festival for the first time. And I know, of course, my history is much shorter than most of you, but for the first time in forever, probably. Many of you came to me and said, I've never been home on Halloween In my house. Never, because you've always been here. You've always been at the church. But understanding that we live in a culture that now, and this is rising at least, and it's growing every day, 60% of the culture will never set foot in a church. And getting the feedback from so many people who had put on the Harvest Festival for years, everyone that I talked to came to the same conclusion. It's a great event, it's a wonderful thing, but we're basically putting on a show for Christians. That's what we were doing. And it was a great show, it was a great harvest festival. But understanding that the perception so many times is Halloween, it's evil, it's dark, it's the celebration of all things that we don't like. So we run from it, not understanding that it's an opportunity for us to engage the culture, not not to celebrate evil or darkness, but to realize that people are coming to our door. The world comes to our door. So we intentionally decided to have garage parties instead of a harvest festival. And I have heard time and time again the last couple weeks people talking to me say, hey, you know, some people, like, I don't really want to do this at first. Some people are like, I'm not happy with the fact that we're not doing a harvest festival. And I said, I'm sorry, but we got to really care about the world. And people who did it, I've had, I think, out of probably about the 10 people I've talked to, eight of those were like, I can't believe I haven't done this before. They said, I've met neighbors that I didn't even know I had. I've met neighbors that I know and have lived there for years, but I never had a chance to connect with them. They actually came to my house People were blown away by the fact that I opened my garage or my driveway or whatever, and I welcomed people in more than just handing candy to their kids. You had conversations. I mean, and people, I mean, I heard people starting to coordinate for next year with their neighbors. Hey, let's throw a block party. This is not just enough in the garage. Let's make, let's expand this. I got to meet neighbors that I had been trying to meet for the last nine months that actually came. We had, pe- we had repeat customers who came to our house because they heard that there was coffee and that there was pumpkin bars and there was cookies, and people up the street said, hey, we heard about you. We had four moms who were all dressed up in in their costumes drive up with this tricked out golf cart into our driveway, and they got all the stuff, like, this is cool. And a half hour later, they come driving back with their 10 kids all packed on the golf cart because they wanted them to be a part of it too. It was awesome. It was so much fun. It was integrating with the world, it was building relationships so that God can open the door for salvation to come through those relationships. Isn't that so much more exciting? Maybe just for me. Come to my house next year. If you were bored this year, we'll have fun. <laughs> I get excited. Why? Because the more people we know who don't know Jesus, the more opportunity there are for them to come to know him. That's why we exist. Because the sad thing is the longer that we follow Jesus, the less people we would know that don't know him. That's why we have to intentionally get ourselves outside the church, get ourselves into the culture that we live in. And then the second thing that our influence looks like is it looks like restoration. So salt also was used as an antiseptic in the process of healing. So someone need purification in a wound, it was used to bring healing. And so salt had this restorative power in it that people would use. And so when Jesus uses the analogy of salt, he's saying that if you are truly salt in the world, there's an element to your life that brings restoration in the lives of other people who are touched by you. And that means in order for us, again, to bring restoration in the lives of other people, we actually have to have contact with them. We have to be with them. We have to be next to them. Because ultimately, if we're not, we can't administer what God needs us to administer in their life to bring restoration. That's why James wrote in James 1.27, probably a very familiar verse. He says, "...religion that our our Father God accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world." I've heard that verse talked on so many times, and when people say, get polluted by the world, say, yeah, don't be impure, think pure thoughts, don't do anything wrong, have everything right, basically be whitewashed, have everything perfect, and that's, no. How do you keep from being polluted by the world? You care for widows and orphans. That's how you're not polluted, because that mindset comes from God. And when it comes from God, then you and I are living under this mindset that cares for people who are broken, and in a world where the majority of the globe does not care for people who are broken, when you and I start to care for people who are broken, guess what? It looks different. It looks different. And people start to see that. And they start to see the influence that we have. And I think what's happened in our culture, the church right now, we're, we're kind of playing catch-up in some regards to what the world has started to do the last couple of decades. Started to care more for the broken. And the church started to realize, you know what? That's our responsibility, And we partner with the world to do that, but we should be leading the way in caring for people who are broken and being that restorative element in our culture. And if you and I would embrace that, thinking, what does it look like to live amongst people who are broken? What does our city look like? So I've lived in Simi Valley for nine months now, and I'm still trying to get a read on it, and I'm getting more and more of a feel for Simi Valley. And there's days that, in fact, about three or four weeks ago, I just said, God, show me what I need to see. And so I put a little reminder on my phone at 10 p.m. every night. I asked myself a question, What did you see today? And I'd write stuff down. You know what I saw a lot of? I saw a lot of teenagers walking around Simi Valley having nothing to do. And because they have nothing to do, they find something wrong to do. I saw a lot of that. I saw some people who were homeless, but the homeless people in Simi Valley find a way to hide. They come out and places you care for them, like the Samaritan Center, or they'll show up to our food pantry. But you see, you know what I see the most of, though, when I drive around Simi Valley? I see single, single drivers in their cars by themselves with the windows rolled up, mostly SUVs with nice tinted windows, sitting at a stoplight. And if I can get a moment to look into their eyes, I can tell you what's on their mind. I'm supposed to be happy, but I'm absolutely miserable. Because I'm driving this SUV that cost me $75,000, and I couldn't afford it. And I'm living in a house that cost me $550,000, and I can't afford it. And my credit cards are all maxed out, and somebody needs to help me. And I'm supposed to be happy about this, and I'm not. And I see them. You know where they all end up going? They all end up going to Starbucks on 1st in L.A. <laughs> drive by there and tell me, when's the last time you saw less than 20 cars in that drive through Why? Because you've got to go to Starbucks, because everybody goes to Starbucks, because that's what makes America happy, Right? Nothing against Starbucks. I love it. But understanding that's the city we live in. We live in a city that has this thin veneer of everything's okay. But if you just scratch beneath the surface just a little bit, oh, we are so broken. We are so miserable. We are not happy. Why is that? Because we need Jesus. And how are people going to find Jesus? Are they going to walk inside this building? Probably not. But are you going to walk into their life? Probably. And that's the way people find Jesus. That's the way our influence is important. That's why you and I are finding ways, not only as individuals, but more and more as a church, we want to find ourselves close to people who are broken. That's why we're continuing to build a partnership with the Samaritan Center. I think we've had 50 people from our church who've gone to the two or three orientations we've had over there to find out more about what they can do in the Samaritan Center. And we have small groups serving there. We have families serving there. We have people doing whatever they can, donating there. It's amazing. Why? Because we know that's one area in our city where people who are broken congregate because they have needs. And we can partner with a great organization that's already doing it. So looking and seeing, God, what is going on in our city? What do we need to see? What are we not seeing Open our eyes, let us see it, so that we can fully be a part of the process of restoration. Third thing about what our influence looks like, it looks like clarification. Light brings clarity to things that are in darkness. This is important, shifting from salt to talk about light. Light is effective when it shines. Light is effective when it is in darkness. Light is effective when it is shined on somebody's path, not in somebody's eyes. And that's a hard one for the church, because sometimes we have a tendency to think, wow, they live in darkness, so I better shine light at them. Jesus never shined light at somebody. He's shown light in front of somebody so they could see their sin or brokenness and see the pitfalls of their life. But you and I have a tendency, it's like, well, I'm going to be light in the world, so all these people living in darkness, they need light, so we walk around with our big spiritual flashlight shining in everybody's eyes, saying, can't you see? No, I can't, because I'm blinded by your stinking light. That's what happens. Jesus didn't do that. That's why when Jesus walked into a a place where there's a party and people are getting drunk, he didn't start shining. look at all you drunkards. No, he actually sat next to them and became their friends in the midst of their brokenness. And then through his example could shine light on the brokenness of their lives. But you and I come in, lights blazing and pointing it at people and they can't see. The last thing somebody needs who's in darkness is a bright light in their face. It's the last thing. You ever been in like ultimate darkness where you can't even see your hand in front of your face? And what, it, it's that, that, almost that panic, like, what am I going to do? I, I can't see around me. I was, my family grew up going to Hume Lake, and we would always go and stay in a cabin there. And, and I would, as we got older, I would, could invite friends. And one year we were all down kind of doing our evening tradition, which we would go down, we'd go down to the snack bar, and we'd hang out by the lake. And then just before dark, we would head back up to the cabin. Well, that particular night, my friend and I, we wanted to stay longer than my family, and so they started to head back up, and my mom said, listen, it's fine if you stay, but you need to make sure that you get back to the cabin before it gets dark. And so we said, sure. Well, when you're a teenager and there's other girls around, there's girls around, and there's two guys, you're like, you lose track of time, you lose track of the sun, and you don't know it's going to get dark, and suddenly it's dark. And I remember it got dark, I thought, oh, no, we don't have a flashlight. And the roads don't have lights that we were going to go up. And there was no moon that night. It was pitch black. So it was about a mile walk. So we started walking. And of course, that whole week, they were making warnings about, you know, at evening time, bears are coming out looking for food, so you should make sure that you're inside after dark. So we're walking around, and literally, I'm like shuffling my feet on someplace because I can't even see what's in front of me. I, I, I could not see anything. And so finally, we kind of stumbled our way home. But, but just imagine for a moment, what if someone decided to come and help us? Like, what if my parents thought we need to put the search crew out there? We need to go find them. So how do you think they're going to help us? They're going to bring a spotlight and shine it right in our eyes and say, hey, we found you. Now you can see your way home. No, we can't because we can't even see our hand. We couldn't see it because of darkness. Now we can't see it because we're blind from your light. But what if they came alongside and put their arm around us and said, hey, let me show you the way home. See, that's the way that God wants us to approach people. That's why in Psalm 119, 105, it says, Your word is a lamp for my feet and a light for my path, not a light to be shown in my eyes. And that's what God calls us to be. People need light, but they don't need it shined at them. They need it shined in front of them. It's being able to see clearly because you have the light in front of you. And then finally, the final thing is our influence looks like glorification. So again, the concept of light. Light is, it serves its purpose not when it's focused on itself, but light serves its purpose when it shines on something else. It's a reference point. It's never meant to be something that you and I go to. It's meant to be something that casts light on everything else so that ultimately people can see. And obviously, light ultimately points back to God, because the light that we shine in our world is simply a reflection of who God is. We don't possess light. God is light, and therefore, we reflect to the world around us the light that God has so people can see clearly. So understanding that this is about God, this is not about me, it's not about attracting people to me, it's not being the best salt and light I can be so that people like me. It's about ultimately getting people to understand they are away from God and the only way back is through Jesus to be reconciled back to God and that's what we're supposed to do. And we do that through being light and reflecting God's light. That's why Jesus says it in verse 15. Remember, light, it's put on a stand for everyone to see so there's clarity in the house. It's not put on a bowl, it's not hidden. It's for its purpose. It's outside of that. Light is powerful in the midst of darkness. Darkness. And that's hard for us. We want to be in light all the time. We want to be light. We want to be surrounded by light. But God says, no, you need to go in the midst of darkness so that your light actually has purpose and meaning in this world. It's just like a lighthouse. The concept of the lighthouse is really what God has called us to be. So there's a beautiful lighthouse, very historic lighthouse on the Oregon coast. It's called the Hesita Lighthouse. And we have got a chance to travel there. And it's, it's a beautiful place. And it's up on this ridge and these rocks. And it's, it's kind of like if you go on the internet and you type in lighthouse, chances are you're going to see a picture of this. Because it's kind of like the lighthouse that everybody would look at. And we got a chance to visit it. And it was really amazing to see what, what this lighthouse and how it's utilized and, and how the light is used ultimately for the benefit of people who are lost at sea. In fact, go ahead and put the picture up. This is a picture of, of the the housing or the the top of it, so you see the lens and you see the the, the where the light is the bulb for this lighthouse is a thousand watts now that's that 's obviously a little bit more powerful than what you 're going to put on your lamp at home, but a thousand watts is not that much light, but when that light is taken and it 's put through the lens and it 's refracted through those the the glass is it 's amazing how powerful that light becomes that light actually can be seen from 21 miles out to sea. And here's the crazy thing. The only reason that it's 21 miles is not because the light can't go beyond that. It's because that's where the curvature of the earth kicks in and you can't see it any longer on the horizon. It would go further than that. Thousand watt bulb through a lens, refracted light has that power. In fact, when they were, a number of years ago, when they were cleaning that lighthouse and they literally would stop the rotation of the lens so that the light moved around, They didn't realize the power of the light. In fact, it started forest fires on the backside towards the shore. There's trees that were starting on fire because they had stopped it while they were cleaning it. So they actually designed a a thing that they could either shut the light off or they would actually put a barrier behind it so the light wouldn't shine onto the forest because it kept starting forest fires. This 1,000-watt bulb could start a fire. Why? Because the light was so focused. I want you just to think about that for a moment in our lives. We are reflecting or reflecting the light that God shines into our lives. When was the last time you started a forest fire with your life? When was the last time you ignited somebody else's soul to follow Jesus because they looked at you and said, well, I I need to know what's going on in your life because I'm so desperate and you seem to have what I don't have and I need it. When was the last time our influence was that way? Now, I know you're thinking so many times when you hear things like that, immediately the first default is, oh, I feel horrible, I feel shame, I feel guilt, I just got to be a better Christian. Stop. You just need to follow Jesus. If you and I will follow Jesus and live out what he talks to us about in Scripture, the world will look at us. They might scratch their head and think, what are you doing? But I'll tell you, they're going to be attracted to something different. Why? Because you are reflecting the light that God is shining to your life and it influences people around you. So let me close with this. You and I have to realize God has put put us where we're at. God has placed us in Simi Valley. God has given you the life. Maybe you live outside Simi Valley. Maybe you live in Park. You live in the valley or you live in Thousand Oaks. I don't know. God has placed you where you're supposed to be because he wants you to be a light. He wants you to be a light at home. He wants you to be a light at your job, in your school, wherever you go. He wants you to be a light. He wants you. And that means you and I have to get closer and closer to people so we can be salt and light in their lives. Meeting people, putting pushing ourselves outside of what's easy and what's comfortable. So I told you, I finally got to meet some of my neighbors. In fact, the other day, the person who lives right next door to us, we've been there for nine months and we've never met. We've waved as we drive by and then quickly shut our garage doors like everybody in Simi Valley does. But the other night, I drove home, and my neighbor was out in his driveway, and he was sweeping. And I thought, this is it, God. I've been waiting for this opportunity. I didn't want to look like an idiot and just, like, run out of my car and go, hey, and wave him down. And he'd run into his house. Who's the freak living next door to me? So, honestly, I'll just be honest. So, what I did is I, I knew Kim had already gotten the mail, but I thought, I'll go get the mail. So, I walked out to our—we actually share mailboxes. And so, I walk out, and I look in, and I knew there was no mail. And I'm like, oh, look, there's my neighbor so I just walked over to him, and we talked for an hour. I got to hear a little bit about his story, about what he does for a living. In fact, Kim comes out like 45 minutes later. She's like, where'd you go? <laughs> it's like, I went to get the mail, honey. <laughs> so, But I, I was so excited after that conversation. I was like, Finally. Now I know his name and his wife's name and his story and his, about his kids, about, all, about his own spiritual journey and the struggles that he's had, all in an hour's time, all because I thought, I'll go check the mail. I know that's just the beginning of what light God wants to shine into his life, what God wants to do in him. And I want to push myself out of that. Find places where you know that you can build relationship. Go frequent a business and get to know people behind the counter, even if you hate the food. Just do it for the sake of the gospel and for eternity. If we did that, if we realized that's why persecution came in the New Testament, because God said, listen, it's great when light's together, but it's more effective when it's scattered. So he scattered the church. The people went all over the place, so the gospel spread. And that's why the power of the church is not experienced here on a Sunday morning. The power of the church is experienced in our lives every single day. Because the Holy Spirit lives inside of us. And Simi Valley is not going to change because some church does great services on a Sunday. It's not going to happen. Simi Valley is going to change because individual believers believe that the Spirit of God lives in them and they can shine light and be salt in their relationships everywhere they go. That sound fun? Scary? Exciting? Yeah, it is. It's all of those. But that's the journey we're on as individuals. That's the journey we're on as a church. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we are so thankful again for your word. And specifically the words that you spoke 2,000 years ago, that you not only spoke to those gathered there on that hillside, but you spoke those words knowing that for all the rest of human history, we would reference back to the words that you spoke that tell us what it means to follow you, that tell us what it means to be one of your disciples. And so, Lord, we know that Being a disciple means we are influencers. And so we want to be salt. We want to be light. But Lord, we know that sometimes we are neutralized in that. And that's why, Lord, we want to be right. We want to be what you've called us to be. So, Lord, I I pray that you would open our eyes. You would allow us to see around us things that maybe we've never seen, things that maybe are right in front of our face that just we never even realized were there. But now you open our eyes to see people and see brokenness, and see things around us, and realize that we have light within us that can be shown into people's lives so they might know who you are. Lord, thank you. Lord, help us in this journey to not only become, Lord, the individuals and the disciples that you want us to be, but Lord, help us to be the church you want us to be in Simia Valley help us to be the church that partners together with your body that not only has influence in in our city but lord that has influence around the world because lord you love people and we want to be that church in following you. We thank you Jesus in your name. Amen. Amen. Would you stand with me as we head out